On this episode of the Great Point Podcast, Sonny Vaccaro talks about how he helped transform Michael Jordan into one of the most famous athletes of all time, why he was trying to give Kobe Bryant millions when no one else wanted to, why he walked out when LeBron James first worked out for him, and the reason he thinks the NCAA is hypocritical. Let's talk hoops, let's talk crossovers, let's talk dimes, let's talk hoops, let's talk rumors, let's talk opinions, let's talk truth, let's talk future, let's talk present, let's talk past, fundamentals and flash, me running the flow, stay go, running the show like a young Steve Nash, I'd like to welcome all of you to the Great Point Podcast. been called a sneaker mogul, a cultural icon, the godfather, and some other names by critics. But regardless of what you call him, there is no denying the impact Sonny Vaccaro has had on the game of basketball and on some of the greatest who have ever played that game. Michael Jordan, Kobe Bryant, Tracy McGrady, LeBron James, and countless others through the Dapper Dan Classic, grassroots basketball with AAU, and through the summer camp circuit. He was Willy Wonka in a basketball factory, working wonders as an executive with Nike, Adidas, and Reebok. And in his latest act, he is leading the fight for the rights of basketball players past, present, and future. Sonny Vaccaro, welcome to the Great Point Podcast. Glad to be here. hope we're going to have a good evening. Oh, yeah, we will. We will. Sonny, obviously tons to get to with Michael Jordan and Kobe and such, but I want to start out with the early years. Can you take me back to the beginning and, and how this lifelong relationship with basketball really began? It was an accident. Um, uh, you know, I, I, uh, I was a high school athlete a million years ago in a small town in Pennsylvania. and uh, Basketball was nowhere in my horizon. When you, I went to a small high school and played football and baseball and track and field and those sort of things, and basketball because it was snowing outside. Um, I, you know, uh, I got a scholarship for football. Uh, I was going to go to the University of Kentucky. Uh, I guess I was an original Prop 48 kid. Uh, they want me to go to a junior college, which in the 50s, and I'm, that's what I'm talking about, 1957, I believe. Um, they want me to go to a junior college in the state of California, and I did. I went out to Reedley, California. I got hurt, and I wasn't, I guess, as quick or as good as what I, you know, what, what you thought I was out of high school. Um, when it was time to renew, uh, they, Kentucky felt I was a, a second slow or whatever, so I didn't get my scholarship that I thought I was going to get the year prior. And uh, there I was out in California right next to Fresno and uh, not knowing what I was going to do. Uh, I wrote a letter to uh, a guy named Dyke Beatty at Youngstown State University, which was a very good small college situation, and uh, he offered me a scholarship to play football. So I'm back there, and I, I get to spring practice in August, I guess it was, and uh, I still couldn't I couldn't run. So the people of Kentucky, they weren't, you know, the injury was, I guess, uh, debilitating in the sense that I never played again. Long story short, I, you know, the guy, Dyke Beatty, uh, changed my whole life. He kept me on scholarship, four-year scholarship. Remember those before they were, you know, reinvented yeah. and invented and all that sort of thing? And they kept me on scholarship, and there I was as this young kid, and uh, the assistant football coach was the head basketball coach, and uh, he liked my enthusiasm, and one day, or however it did happen, because there's no real memory of it, although uh, Don Brazzelli was the coach, and he asked me if I'd help him get basketball players to come to the University of Youngstown to play basketball, not football. And that's how my life in basketball started, Adam. So very roundabout way. Uh, you know, very fortuitous for Sonny Vaccaro how it turned out. I graduated from Youngstown State. Uh, by then, my basketball, you know, ability was good in recruiting. I, I eventually got some good kids for you know Youngstown State. How I did it, I was no older than the kids. Uh, I started taking kids around to what would now be considered AAU tournaments, but they weren't named that in, in you know in the 50s and early 60s and. I went to. I lived with Alf, uh, Ralph Miller, uh, Hall of Fame, you know, basketball coach at Wichita. I lived at his uh, guest house. Uh, 
I went home on a recruiting trip. I was a graduate assistant. Uh, I guess that's what I was. I ran intermules. I went home to Pittsburgh. I had an automobile accident around Easter time. Uh, <laughs> interesting how injuries always interfere with my life. And I, I had this accident. And, uh, you know, I was in a hospital. And then my knee, and I'm looking at my knee right now, and, you know, there's still the old big scar around there. They had like a, a leg cast on it for three or four months. I never did go back to Wichita to get my master's. Um, shortly after that, because I was taking these kids around Pennsylvania and Ohio and playing games, I come up with an idea to play a high school All-American game with my good friend Pat DeCesar, who was one year older than me. I was 24 at the time, I guess. And uh, I started the Dapper Dan Round Ball Classic, which was the first All-American high school game, and then the rest is history. That's how I got into my life of basketball. What was the basketball landscape the landscape like at that time? Well, no one really knew who the basketball player was. It was and if you're in Pittsburgh, you really didn't know uh, because football was uh, the preeminent sports. I mean, you know, there were no other all-star games. Uh, the state championship was the big thing, and you, probably Indiana was the only state that anyone knew they played basketball in because they'd publicized it so much and all that sort of stuff. But, you know, Pennsylvania wasn't, but we had great athletes and great kids, and I saw this in my my recruiting days and, and the days that I'd go play in these tournaments after the high school season was over, and they were immensely popular, and that's really how college basketball guys recruited in the 60s. They'd go to these out-of-the-way tournaments or see you in your high school. There was no Internet. There was no five stars. There wasn't any of this. There were these, you know, small-town, you know, tournaments, and I became good at getting kids to play with me. Uh, I became good at, I guess, spotting talent. Uh, and that's how, you know, round ball, Dapper Dan, the All-American game, the first one, it was 17. It'll be our 50th year. I, I quit seven years ago uh, when I walked away to, to pursue the court case against the NCAA. But that's, uh, so there was, I never saw 90% of the kids for the first five or six years play other than the kids in Pennsylvania and Ohio. I used Dell Magazine and Street and Smith and to recruit players who were supposedly the number one players in the state. The ironic thing is I wanted Lou Alcindor, who was, uh, you know, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar now, but he was Lou Alcindor in high school. And uh, he played for Power Memorial. I went down to the Matha uh, High School. They played a game against Power Memorial at uh, University of uh, Maryland Fieldhouse. I saw that game where uh, the Matha beat Power Memorial. I asked... Uh, the coach of Lou would play in the game, and he'd turn me down. So I actually went into my first All-Star game, not knowing there'd be a second one because the greatest player in the country that the public did know was Lou Alcindor, and he didn't play in the game. And he was one of the few that didn't know for the years. And so everything, everything in my life has been incidental, coincidental, but mostly successful. You bring up Lou Alcindor and, and Power Memorial. My uh, father went to high school with Pat Riley at. Uh... Linton oh. High School in Schenectady, New York, okay. and they also played against Lou Alcindor's team. People don't know Pat right. Riley and uh, and Kareem played each other in, in high school. It's pretty incredible. So from there, how did you then get to Nike? Well, that was, uh, let's see, that was 64 with the All-Star, 65 with the All-Star game. I started doing camps. My game was the number one game in America. There was no question about that. You have to understand, McDonald's didn't even come on the surface until 1977. So we would sell 19. We started the first year we had, we had 10,334, and that was the capacity of the brand-new Civic Arena in Pittsburgh. And then it expanded to 17,000, and we had 17,000. So watching a high school All-Star game. So I became this celebrity. Uh, we were we were the talk of basketball every, and because there was no competition, at least in my judgment, we got the best kids. And then by by the early 70s, it was no problem at all. I mean, you know, the kids all wanted to play in the number one high school, the only high school all star game. Um, so everything went well. Uh, then I became I ran camps, uh, you know, pay for camps for kids. Uh, I had Bobby Knight and a lot of great college coaches come in at that of that era, and uh, you know we went in Seven Springs, Pennsylvania, which was a resort, and we went ten weeks in the summertime. So I was running camps and doing my game and doing some things for the ABA. I actually represented uh, George Gervin and Dana Lewis, Mickey Davis, uh, you know, 
some kids, and well, obviously Gervin is you know one of the 50 greatest players ever to play, and I did his contract with the Virginia Squire. So I was, you know, I was involved in basketball then. Uh, that was I quit teaching. I, I forgot to say I was coaching. Uh, I was an assistant football coach and basketball coach at my high school where I had graduated in Pennsylvania. Then um, I quit in 1970, I believe, and started camps and everything. And then one day, uh, a friend of mine who represented uh, basketball players, I told him I had some ideas for a shoe. Uh, I heard about this company out in the West Coast, or Oregon. Wasn't the West, I didn't know where in the hell Oregon was. And uh, mm-hmm. so I, they got me an appointment to go see Phil Knight and Nike. It was Blue Ribbon Sports Sand, uh, their, their trade name. And um, I flew out there with, with, with a bunch of shoes with a shoemaker friend of mine and my little town of Trafford made me. And that's 1977, I popped on the doorsteps. I paid my own ticket to go to Nike. So that's how it got me a Nike, and then the world changed. That is stunning that uh, Sonny Vaccaro at first didn't know where, where Oregon was. You know, you're so synonymous with the start of, of Nike and all. We know Nike now is this multi-billion-dollar-a-year company, you know, just this, this huge, huge enterprise. But what was it like when you, when you first started there? <laughs> they were working in cubicles in one building in uh, in Beaverton, Oregon, and they were a running shoe company. And they had about ten employees, and they were not in basketball. The only basketball team in college they had was University of Oregon, because that's where Phil had graduated as a, as a track star. Uh, and track and field was Nike's forte when they first started. So there was no basketball. It was, it was you know. There wasn't. They were just starting. This is the, the original thing. They were just starting. Uh, they were selling, you know, T-shirts out of the trunk of their car then, you know, a couple years earlier. Obviously, you and Michael Jordan put Nike on the map. Michael what? Jordan had been a superstar at North Carolina. I mean, he hit the game-winning shot as a freshman against Georgetown, the national championship, wins national player of the year as a junior but he wasn't the Michael Jordan we know today. So take me through how uh, the whole Michael Jordan uh, signing really happened for you. Well, it was probably the most low-keyed, biggest investment signing in the history of sport marketing. Uh, no key that no one was running around signing basketball players to major endorsements. At, the, at that time, Magic Johnson and – you know, Dr. J and Larry Bird, they were obviously the stars of the NBA. Uh, you know, television wasn't even being live into your home. In fact, one of the years, I think, it, uh, Magic played, it was tape delay in the East. They were playing Philadelphia, I believe. So it wasn't a major thing. College game was pretty popular. Uh, you know, the Final Four and all that stuff. You know, the Atlantic Coast Conference. But pro guys, uh, you know, weren't selling. And, and no one had... You know, there wasn't a lot of money, a lot of money put into them. But Nike, uh, we uh, just a short circuit that your assumption that Nike wasn't doing anything prior to Michael. We were. We signed about 75 percent of the best colleges in America to wear the basketball shoe. Uh, we started that in '78 and went right to '84. We owned. We started winning championships. That was my first job with them: is to sign college coaches. Uh, and the best teams to wear the shoe. That's how Nike started basketball. Jordan was the second phase. Uh, they had some pro basketball players, some good pro basketball players, but no one gave a damn about pro basketball in the early 80s. Uh, Jordan was Jordan was this this thing that happened. Uh, you know, you know, Phil wanted to do something. The other people in marketing wanted to do something. We were filling our oats. Uh, we were now a recognized name. We were, gonna, we were passing Converse as college. You know, Nike was known when Michael had because of college sports. Uh, Georgetown Worm in that game that you were talking about. Uh, you know, so we, we had seven, I think, NCAA winners in the, in the 80s that won the championship, seven Nike schools, I believe. And in 84, we had all four of the Final Four teams. Georgetown, Villanova, St. John's, and Memphis. I mean, so Nike was, we, we were doing okay, but nothing to what Michael did. Michael was, uh, we were talking about signing a guy, 
everybody in Nike wanted to sign other guys or wanted to get two or three guys. And, and basically the historical fact of the matter is no one really wanted to sign Michael except me. And that's where I got my chops, I guess. That, that's what happened. It wasn't like, you know, Phil was salivating. They, they didn't really know how good Michael was. And I don't know, I think you summed it up well, that Michael was all these things, but he was not, he was not by many means, uh, you know, an exciting player at North Carolina. He was really good. He hit the shot against Georgetown. Um, he won. The, he was the most valuable college guy. And, and you know, they didn't win the championship his junior year. They won his freshman year when they had one of the greatest teams ever. So, but Michael was his person. And I, why I gravitated, why I thought of it, uh, I can't give you an explanation. And you know, I've been going through that question now for 30 years. Uh, I wish there was a pat thing. I just thought he was capable of being that person. We ended up giving him, you know, you know, $500,000. I mean, it's amazing when you're talking about kids getting zillions of dollars today. That's what Michael did. That's what we signed him for. Jordan comes and the world turns. I mean, there's, he started, he, he really created marketing of pro athletes. You know, all the BS and all the, all the, you know, the late boomers who want to rewrite history, they can't do it. Michael Jordan did it. Then Spike Lee helped him do that. Uh, you know, with, with the, it's got to be the shoes commercials and all that sort of stuff. And it was two black kids in the mid-'80s in America. I mean, can you imagine what I'm trying to tell you here? Why that happened, how come it happened? It happened because, you know, the people in Oregon and, you know, and, and, and the belief they had in me, Allowed me to do some things, and you know, and, and Michael's uh, Michael's a billionaire today, not because he's the greatest player in America, because he owns part of a company. He owns part of a company because we gave him a signature shoe in 1984. Because if he just signed an endorsement deal, he'd be getting endorsement money. Now he gets partnership money. You mentioned you didn't know exactly what it was about MJ, but is there anything you thought of up at night as to why? He was the guy. No, you know, and to be honest, Adam, I, I, I can, you know, as I go through my life, and you talk about LeBron and Kobe and Tracy and, and other things I've done, I've never, I don't know why I've done a lot of things logically. Uh, I can't, I, I can. It would be nice for me to make up a story 30 years ago and then follow that story up like I was some sort of a, uh, you know, a crystal ball, Nostradamus. I. Every time, or once in a while, make a joke out of. I mean, I just have a feel. I, I can't explain why. Why Tracy McGrady? Why? Why Kobe out of high school giving him over a million dollars? It's an illogical thing to do. I, in a lot of ways, I'm blessed. I mean, I don't know. I didn't go to class for that, so damn sure. Uh, but if you follow the bouncing ball, you're going to find that to be consistent with my life. And I just thought. At the threat of, you know, they they actually said, I don't know if it would have happened, they actually said, well, you bet your job on this. Now, you have to understand, no one else in Nike really wanted Michael, or they wanted him, but they wanted to split the money up between Charles Barkley, you know, a couple other guys, Johnny Stockman, you know, uh, the kid, you know Elijah Wan. It was a great class. It was a heck of a class, my God. We could have, you know, and they could have gotten away with anything. But they listened to me, and, and, and you know, and Phil and I didn't always agree on a lot of things, but some of the ones we agreed on, we hit, we hit home runs on. There's no question about that. So when you were finally able to convince these executives, Phil was with you? With me when? In what context are you using that? Just in the sense that he was on your side in terms well, of they always, trusting your that, God. That's the irony of my relationship. Every major decision from 1978 on signing college coach, every every college coach they ever signed was my idea. I mean, I I I put the pay scale and I signed them. They didn't know who John Thompson or Jerry Tarkanian or you know these people were. Jimmy Valvano. I mean, it was me, and I knew them. That was easy for me because of my round ball game. I knew all the guys. I knew all the coaches. I have a feel for this stuff, and and that's basically. Uh, however your audience wants to interpret this, it's a fact, because there's no classes you go to, and they allowed me to do this. That's the point the people listening to you have to understand. The, the, there was no bickering. It was my decision, and the money was my decision. 
I mean, that was wow. basically when they asked me, do we give the 500, you know, the three guys, I said no. So basically I said, give it all to Jordan. Give it to the kids is what I actually said. There's no logical explanation for my life. So staying on Jordan, you know, you know, it's just as hard a call was Kobe Bryant in 96 for Adidas after I'd got let, let loose at Nike and, you know, and, and we were making inroads and, and Adidas was going to be a valuable and a viable player in basketball, which we were eventually uh, until LeBron fiasco. But anyway, given Kobe one and a half million dollars a year, I mean, whew, when, when I told you, you know, five minutes ago, we gave Michael 500,000. That was like, you know, <laughs> 10 years later. Interesting. Now we're giving $25 million a year, you know, contracts. <laughs> interesting. Interesting, isn't it? It really is. Well, the one one thing I'm very curious about is, as far as Michael Jordan's concerned, how hard was it to convince him? We always hear well, about the way you convince the executives, but what about convincing MJ to do that? It was like right to the end, because Michael, my, Nike wasn't a shoe of choice. Uh, you know, that, that he wanted to sign, if he'd have got as much money from Adidas or close to he would have gone with Adidas. There's no doubt in my mind. And, and he says that. He said it. Uh, Converse was a shoe that North Carolina wore because Converse had a deal with North Carolina and Dean Smith and all that. Michael would have gone with Adidas, you know, 30 years ago. But the world would have changed because he never would have had Brand Jordan. That's the irony. So Michael wasn't like – he didn't wake up want to be a Nike guy. I, I didn't know him when I had the first meeting with him. I never met Michael until he met me in Santa Monica for me to convince him that Nike wanted them and this is what we would do. There's no friendship here. It's not like he was going to my camps, playing to my all-star games. I didn't know him. North Carolina, they beat Georgetown, which was like my favorite team in the world. I mean, it was all negative. It was an illogical assumption that I would even think of, if it wasn't business, why would I even have a North Carolina guy and a kid to beat Georgetown? That was illogical to think of coming out of another person's mind, but that's another thing. I never let stuff like that affect my decisions. So, so I took a kid that, you know, no one, you know, that he didn't want to come really. I can't say it enough, but remarkable is the description to uh, keep using with you, Sonny, throughout your your entire life. So Jordan then starts to turn Nike into the empire, the early stages of the empire, as everyone is wearing Air Jordans. And, and they, they changed the cultural landscape forever. There's no doubt about that. So what happened the day that you were fired then from Nike? <laughs> you know, I don't know. Uh, it was a day that I didn't think was happening. I just, Michael, my wife, and I just come back from a, a European trip. We had a, it was right when the Gulf War was in the 1990s. And, uh, and we had a private airplane. It took us from, from we were, we, Michael put the first shovel of dirt in the, the Olympic Stadium in Barcelona, because that's where they were having the, you know, that's where the first dream team played, I think, in 92, was in Spain. We went from Spain to uh, Paris to Germany on one of those, you know, promotional trips. And Michael, we had a private plane. And we come back and, you know, we, we flew home and now it's like, you know, whatever that is. And then uh, Nike was having their convention uh, where all the college coaches would come to and, and uh, at the Biltmore Hotel in, 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 in Colorado. And uh, they wanted, Michael was then in the process of suing the NBA uh, for his likeness because he didn't want to put his name in the pot with all the NBA players and split the revenue. So he and Magic Johnson joined forces to that. I was at that meeting helping uh, in, in representing Michael and, and Nike and you know him opting out of his NBA contract. Uh, so I get home, and you know it's about a week later, and I get a call to come to Oregon. Uh, I never spent more than three days in my 10, 12 years with Nike in in Oregon. I, I never I never went up there. Just I only went up there for business meetings. So I thought I was going to go up there to you know talk about Michael opting out because we put the deal together. I was involved in everything Michael did. Everything, like I said, a private airplane. I, I, you know, I produced a an NBC special as a co-producer. The fight, first Michael Jordan on NBC national TV, uh, the Jordan mm-hmm. salute. Um, 
you know, we did everything together. I started the camp, the original camp that's now the, the fantasy camp. Michael and I started together in 85 at uh, Elmer's College in, in Illinois. So we were, I stayed at his home uh, when Phil Knight stayed at a, a, a hotel off camp, off, uh, you know, not, not with Michael. Um, so that's how close I was. And then I go to, I go up there on uh, August 15th, uh, 1991, I guess. And, uh, and Phil just fires me. So, but, but I was doing a lot of things. I mean, I wasn't doing legal things. I mean, I was doing a, I, I was doing all-star games. I was, I was very, very close with Michael, obviously. And, but I never thought that I would get fired. I thought I'd be buried with a swoosh in my head. So, so that's, that's, that's what happens. So that's, Hopefully, I made sense to you. For sure, for sure. So then you walk out the doors of Nike, and then what's your plan? I didn't have any plan. I had a job when I, I was there <laughs> 10 minutes ago. <laughs> I go home. Uh, I fly home the same night. Uh, my wife, it was a holy day for Catholics at that time, and, uh, and she was at our, our church in Santa Monica, California, and I just I got the 5 o'clock plane out. Uh, I thought I was going back the next day. And by the time I landed, you know, 7, she was... The, she went to the evening mass, and I got a cab, and I met her in church, and she was shocked, and I told her what happened, and so we're home about 8.30 that night, and the phone's off the hook, and it wasn't like, you know, other than answering machines, and, you know, cell phones and all that stuff didn't work, so I actually told her as we were leaving church, so, so my whole world changed, I mean, we didn't have a job, and all that sort of crap, and, but it's just something that, you know, I don't know, it, it turned out well, I did okay. <laughs> There's zero doubt about that. So you end up on your feet at Adidas, and then while you're with Adidas, because obviously you're still one of the hottest names around, even though you and Nike had parted ways, uh, when did Kobe Bryant first show up on your radar? Uh, his, when he came back from Italy with his family, his dad, Joe, and I'll tell you another small world, Joe Bryant was the MVP in the 1972 Round Ball Classic, Joey from Philadelphia, <laughs> and uh, and Joe Bryant's, you know, and Kobe's mother, uh, brother, you know, played in the game Chubby Cox the year after Joey. So I had bo- I had the Cox family and the Bryant family playing my Round Ball Classic in the 70s. Joe now brings his son back to America. He was playing pro ball in Italy. Uh, and I, I guess it was 94, 95, I know a year he graduated, but he's going into his junior year. Joey got reached out to a friend of mine, Gary Charles, and, you know, he wanted to see me. He had met, he remembered me from round ball. He knew Gary, and uh, he wanted to bring him to camp. And I said, okay. I had no idea. I just thought I was doing a favor to a next player. Uh, you know, I never <laughs> forgot. It. That's the absolute truth. So it wasn't like I knew it because Kobe didn't play anywhere. So all the BS, everybody knew how good Kobe was, were all full of crap. I mean, you know, even Kobe made a silly statement about he learned everything in, you know, Europe. I don't know what he learned. I mean, I don't know when, when he could have learned it. Uh, he was not a hot commu- commodity coming here. But my, was he brilliant? Is he, he was brilliant, is brilliant, will always be brilliant. One of the greatest players ever to live. And that's, that's how I met Kobe. Joe brought him to me. Then he went to ABCD camp. And he was brilliant. His junior year and his senior year, he's the number one player in America. And then he drops out of high school. And Kevin Garnett's the only other kid that did that in the 90s. But Kevin didn't get a shoe contract. And I gave Kobe this really unbelievable shoe contract. It was over a million dollars a year. Uh, so come a long way. <laughs> so was there any doubt during the process that you would end up signing him to Adidas? Well, Kobe wasn't hard because Nike nor anyone else wanted Kobe. And that's why even the money I paid him was because no one ever understood because that's what his value was, and I was dead right about that. But Nike didn't want him. I mean, he, Nike had the, all these people. I mean, they were Nike then. I was just Adidas. We we were starting. We didn't even have – we had a couple of players, but it wasn't anything like Nike. I mean, they still had Jordan. I mean, hell. You know, so – Kobe was the first, and, and I got to know him because of the camp. I got to know his mother and dad. Uh, I moved to New York. Pam and I lived there for nine months his senior year. I never saw him, but I saw his mom and dad a couple times a month, and 
and we we made him an offer, and he took it. And but no one, the, the, that was the irony there. I mean, no one else wanted them. All, all the BS you hear, and then he leaves Adidas later on and goes to Nike, and you know he's done very well and made a lot of money with them. But my, the point was, they didn't want them. <laughs> Nobody wanted them, but I did. Yeah, it's interesting. I I was in southeastern Pennsylvania at that time, and the oh, okay. one thing that I remember, yeah, and what I remember about Kobe coming up, I mean, people started talking about him through Sunny Hill League and stuff, and obviously when he got ranked highly amongst the other amongst the other uh, high school players in that class, the one thing that was crazy was all the Philadelphia media was laughing at him actually going to the NBA because they thought there was no way this guard could be playing in the league, so... It's uh, it's amazing that you had that foresight. Regardless of how highly ranked he was, everyone was thinking he was a suburbs kid who couldn't play. And uh, once again, you seem to have seen through what other people just couldn't see. Not only was he a suburbs kid, he went to Lower Marion and they had all white guys out there. And, and, and Kobe had to integrate himself into the city. And even though, as I said, Sonny Hill was a Nike-sponsored situation, and Sonny was a very intuitive, smart guy, and you know that from living back there. He's had an unbelievable life and career, and he's done a lot of good, especially in Philadelphia. You know, but So it wasn't like he was a solid commodity, because he was at the camp his junior year, and he made the all-star junior team. And I'll tell you what, one of the first everlasting impressions I got of Kobe, when the camp was over his junior year, he runs over to me, gives me a big hug, and thanks me, and then he apologizes. Why are you apologizing, Kobe? He said, Mr. Vaccaro, because I wasn't the best player in camp this year, but when I come back next year, I'll be the best player. He said <laughs> I never, I never forgot. And he was, and he's been the best player for 20-some years now. <laughs> so that that's the irony, and that's the mentality of Kobe. That's the drive of Kobe. And, and again, you know, there – these are the tidbits, you know, that 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 stand out in in my life in the sense that, you know, I, I can't explain or do whatever, and you know, but but Kobe Bryant, he wasn't pursued. Now next year after we signed Kobe, Tracy McGrady comes along, and Phil Knight made a statement. He actually had a meeting with all his, you know, all the people working at Nike that that was never going to happen again. Well, Tracy followed a different blueprint. Tracy almost didn't even get to my camp. I mean, he had a lot of problems in high school. Uh, he came to the ABCD camp unranked and didn't play high school basketball. Uh, a summer league guy called me, and a guy I, I liked and respected basketball-wise. He was convinced me. His high school coach called me a few times saying not to take McGrady. He's a bad kid, bad this, bad dad. The family's horrible. My wife said, Sonny, you got to – Pammy actually – Help me! I never saw Tracy. I mean, I, I, there was no films of him. So Terry said, "You you got to let this kid come. He can't be this bad." So we did, and he came. And now the rest is history. There. Yes, everyone you know, everyone knows what he did at that that right. ABCD camp and and turned right. into the number one high school player in the country. All right, so LeBron James for all the tidbits that did happen to to work out in positive ways and all. LeBron was obviously a fixture of the ABCD camp, tearing it up. I was at the camp in which he played against Lenny Cook and uh, hit the, I don't know, what would you call it, Sonny, a 40-foot game winner to win it uh, against uh, Lenny Cook's team? It was one of those things uh, that, you know, that that you, you, you can't. You're right. It'll be 40 feet. It'll be four feet. It'll be, you know, he was falling out of bonds. It'll be hit off somebody's head, hit the rim ten times and bounced in as the buzzer went off. It's one of those mystical things, but it happened, didn't it? It happened. He did do it under everything in the world, you know, and then supposedly against the number one player in America at that time. And Lenny was really a really good high school player. He just didn't have the mindset to be, you know, professional. There's, but my my point, it's it happened. <laughs> LeBron happened. That's who he is, and that's who he was at sixteen and seventeen. And so, and we were very close. That's a fact. When did you know that LeBron was who LeBron ended up turning out to be? When, when I when I went to Oakland, California, to see him going into his junior year, they uh, his coaches, uh, his surrogate father, his mom, uh, his his guys now that were a uh, part of the LeBron team. These guys, you know, asked me to go to Akron to watch him. 
I wasn't going to do that, so they arranged a game in Oakland, California, University of San Francisco gym, and my wife and I flew up to see him and his high school coach, uh, Dan Roth, uh, at the time. Uh, he's now at the University of Akron's head coach. I was LeBron's high school coach. Uh, you know, they brought him out, and they arranged the game for me to watch. And the first 10 minutes of the game, he wasn't doing it. He didn't shoot the ball, and, and I didn't know what the hell was happening. And everyone was nervous, and, 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 and Coach Zambrot called timeout and talked to him. And, and LeBron's pants were too big for him. This, is, this really happened. I didn't know it was happening until they told me the story. The, the drawstrings were, you know, he was sliding down his butt. <laughs> How about this story, right? And they give him a new pair of things, and and I can I can say this because it's you know I may be exaggerating a little bit. I have no idea, but it seemed to me like one minute. But it was like ten or fifteen minutes into a scrimmage against pretty good players. Um, in fact, Chubby Cox's son, the aforementioned Chubby Cox, his son played at University of San Francisco, and he was in the scrimmage. John Cox, right? Fun. Johnny, you're right. Johnny, that's right. Yep. That's right. See, you know, I'm glad. You, so, th- so he's there just scared. So it was a good. They were good players. And he, I left. I I, I called. The, I called it off. It actually did happen. I see. I seen enough. And then I knew that. You know. Then I start. I met his mom and Eddie Jackson and you know, and you know, and, and all the Chris and Chris Dennis and all the guys and Maverick and then I became a part of that family in Akron. Because I knew he was the answer. <laughs> There's no question about that one. That one wasn't even debatable. Because now a few years after Kobe, Kobe was 96, 97, him and Tracy is now 2003. And Adidas got Kobe and Tracy. Kobe's then making a move to leave, I believe. And Adidas is doing well. And I told LeBron he was going to get $100 million. $10 million a year. And that's a fact because no one's ever disputed it including the family. From Adidas. From Adidas, yes. I've heard the story, but tell me in your own words, Sonny, why didn't that happen? <laughs> because Adidas made the worst worst call in the history of marketing for an athlete in the world. It'll never happen again, either. In fact, every kid today, the $200 million that they just gave Jimmy Harden and you know what Derek got a few years ago and what uh, Kevin Durant got from Nike, you know, that was because of LeBron. That's what happened. We went from Michael to $500,000 to $10 million a year. All Adidas had to do was put the damn money on the contract. We opened it up and it was a trick. It was $100 million, but it wasn't guaranteed. It totaled $100 million, but it was $70 million guaranteed and $30 million in incentives. That is what I told LeBron and his team. He was, I said he was getting $100 million, no incentives. There shouldn't be any incentive, any contract ever tied dollars. If you think the kid's good or the player's good or the movie's good, bet on the goddamn thing. So that's what happened. They How would your it. life have been? Oh, go ahead. Well, you know, my life would have changed, but I, I can't possibly tell you that it would have been better. I mean, my life would have changed because I was able to, you know, bounce back and eventually, you know, I went to Reebok. Reebok was inconsequential as far as the shoe industry because I quit after three years of a very good situation. They treated me well. Uh, the first sign I did was Sean Livingston, and if Sean doesn't get hurt, I don't think there's anybody, you know, that would say he wouldn't have been an all-star because, you know, one of the mm-hmm. worst injuries ever. And he's still playing, you know, all these years later. But, but we never had a chance to do anything other than my camp was the number one camp because after that, that's when I got O.J. and Billy and Kevin Love and uh, Greg Oden and Mike Conley. I mean, our camp, ABC camp, was the talk of America, and anybody that knew anything that it was. So we did good, and then I left, and my life changed. But yeah, I, I don't know how to explain, you know, the these my leaving, my departures, and whatever to the continuation of my life because I, in my mind, I always feel that. My life just continued, with, but with a different path. I never, I mean, hell, I, you know, I got, I got fired. I got fired from Nike. I, 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 I just resigned at, um, at Adidas because the, they broke their word to me and to LeBron, and I couldn't work for people who were going to. My motto was, I guess, all the way back to Phil in 77, and Phil believed me until, 
he got rid of me in 90 or 91, in, uh, in the sense that if I said something to an athlete, or anybody really, you, the, the reason I'm going to win the, the game is because I'm not going to lie to you or exaggerate. And this was the first time someone pulled the rug. And there was no reason, because I, you know, we we rose to the top. There was a change in ownership. There was a change in presidents, and, you know, so they got cute, and they still never recovered. Under Armour has now passed Adidas, and Under Armour was selling shoes out of a, their trunk. It's almost replica of what Nike was in the 70s. I mean, now they're, now they're the second darling in the world, and Adidas is like an afterthought, and, you know, it's it's interesting how life turns out. I guess the real question should have been, you know, how would Adidas have changed? Well, you know what? You know, it's a, it's a good analogy, Adam, but Adam, he was different than Michael because we knew his value because there was never anybody more hyped than LeBron. So going in, mm-hmm. the, the king, King James, I mean, he had all the – Michael was a non-entity, really. I mean, you go back – to what they were able to do with Jordan in the 80s, it was unbelievable what happened there. And obviously, Michael was brilliant. But Nike also put some money behind advertising. The commercials were good, and there was no superstar out there. LeBron's would have been – LeBron's was – they got the money back tomorrow morning. That's rather a dumb mistake. The $10 million was pittance. So you, you've talked about your proudest moment having been your your involvement in the Ed O'Bannon case. 2014, basically, Ed O'Bannon leads a class action lawsuit uh, against the NCAA to sue for the use of player likenesses, and, and you win the case. It's under appeal right now right. by the NCAA. But why was that case so important to you? Well, that's that's fitting you know, question and you know, not the end of my life, but... It's it, it was the most important thing to me because I think for the first time in in my life, in the first time in all these kids who were who who were good to Sonny Vaccaro by them, you know, the, all the ones in the past playing in my games, going to my camps, I earned a good, I had a good living. But this was so wrong. The NCAA is such a fraudulent organization. I mean, I don't know what's going to happen in this appeal. I sit here every night uh, waiting for the damn thing to one way or another, we've already won because there's so many changes. But the very fact that people can sit there and make their own rules in determining the lives of individuals with, the, with their names and their likenesses and their signatures, and it's impossible. It's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard of, but these people who run that organization, and it's been consistent because they've lied since the 70s, because if you go back to what I started my life on, I had a four-year scholarship. Someone offered it to me and never played, and they kept my life changed. You know, and just until recently, now they're going to give some conference to give four-year scholarships back. That they, they took it away in the seventies. I mean, so O'Bannon to me is you know, it, it's basically in my world, in the small part I played. You know, it's given me more personal satisfaction than anything. And and and, and the irony of your audience here, and just for the record. I don't receive a penny for this. I only make a motion because I'm gonna, my next sentence I'm going to tell you is, obviously I made a lot of pennies working for a living and being involved in corporate America. And to get to this point in one life and you just sit back and, you know, it's been a long, this has been seven years since I quit, eight years. It, now, so I, I don't want, you know, everyone saying, well, he, what took you so long? Well, what takes people long time to do anything, Adam, is the opportunity to do them. When Pam and I walked away from Reebok in 2007, we left a hell of a lot of money on the table. They were going to sponsor my games. They were going to sponsor the camps. I had millions of dollars in marketing money. I mean, we could have gone on forever because Reebok was happy and, you know, I was happy and all that sort of But this, the O'Bannon case, I mean, what do you see today in today's paper, uh, you know, the, the kid at Ohio State, the, the halfback, is a brilliant one. He's going to he was trying to get the, his images and, and patent his, his signatures and images. And, you know, how, how, how some people can just sit there and say, we own you. 
I mean, and this is supposed to be an academic situation. This is supposed to be nothing about sports. If you listen to the creed of the NCAA, it's all about it's all about academics. Well, the last thing they're about is academics. That, that academics is part part of the curriculum of athletics. And O'Bannon is showing the fraud. I mean, what you're seeing at Auburn, you know, it's another North Carolina. You think these things are isolated? The only reason they're coming out is because there's reporters now that will work. How many times, and you're you're relatively young, I mean, George Dorman busted Minnesota. He won a Pulitzer Prize with the coach telling his guys not to go to, you know, to school. I mean, uh, the the lady in Tennessee, the lady in Georgia, I mean, the guy in Georgia. I mean, these things have happened in the past, but never to this extent. I mean, I don't because I never will talk about a kid. I don't like talking about, you know, when their money's concerned. But the, 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 what they've done to the academics and the education, I want to tell you a story. I went. I've been speaking with Pam and I spoke at 37 universities, 37, and no football or basketball teams since I let Reebok in 2007. Harvard, Yale, Wharton, I mean, everywhere, Duke, law schools, journalist schools, and business schools. So I'm speaking at a great university, and my lecture's over, and there's a, a figure way in the back, and he puts his arm up and I'm done. I'm done speaking, and he has a child on it. And I recognized him halfway down. I knew who he was. I hadn't seen him in like a long time. Let's say ten years. And he goes down, and I say, "Hello, Jimmy." That wasn't his name. How you doing? I'm okay, Mister. I'm okay. And so we talk, and he was glad to see me. I didn't know he was coming. I didn't know he was there. I knew he went to that school, but it wasn't on my mind. So we talked for a while, and then he told me, you know, he played a little bit in the NBA. Then he played in Europe, then he came home and you know and he said something to me and this is just recently, that was in the last three or four years. But it made it it, it put it all in perspective for me. Because I finally had a kid that I knew really well. Because he was he ended up being the M V player on the team. The team went to the final eight. I think they made up their you know, the game to go to the final four. Um, conference champions, his name's on his shirt's on the banner of the university. <laughs> I mean, it's all up there, right? All American, all this. And he said, they lied to me. And I thought I was going to get, because I've heard this quite often, that when they lied to you, I thought someone promised him $5 and didn't give it to him. So I said, what mm-hmm. do you mean, Jimmy? He said, he said um, I can't get a job. And what they did, they gave me a degree and they didn't give me an education. And I, that was the saddest thing I've ever heard the moment the impact it made. So when you hear you hear these stories and you know all the BS about these schools and the biggest fraud in college sports is maybe not giving them ten dollars which they owe them for their images. That that's another story. I'm not saying they shouldn't. They should. But academically, and then they just lie and BS and they all make excuses about the function of the NCAA. So to sit here and tell you right now, and I'll, I'll say it, if I die tomorrow morning, you know, and I've never been prouder. Now, I'm very happy I made a good living. I'm very happy I don't have, I didn't have to work for eight years because I had $5 in the bank. But the organization, the NCAA, is hypocritical. I know you're going to, I'm going to say these things. I've said them before and then people laugh at me. But I think at the end, I get the last laugh. All I'm saying, the first thing these guys owe them, and they don't all give it to them, is an education. And 1A is, if they use my picture and all that stuff, they don't owe me, they don't owe my image for life. So I would be, I would really be a sick individual if I didn't think that of all the opportunities I've had in life to do something, that this is the most rewarding to me. And I don't want, you know, I'm not being a purist. I keep saying, you know, I, I was able to earn $5 during, during my lifetime. But the, the point is, those $5 were earned. I didn't do anything wrong to anybody. It was a business deal. These, this last eight years is payback. I owe. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I think I'm one of the few people who could have done, helped this thing get started, because Eddie O'Bannon and the plaintiffs did it, and Michael Housefield did it, and the lawyers did it, and then the public eventually did it. Because they sort of gravitated, then you know, 
a good friend of ours, you know, Mark Eidenberg and others like him over the years have have said this many times. But now the the the, the cracking of the veneer of the the painting and you know it's it's not it doesn't it doesn't mesmerize you anymore. And you go to individuals like Shabazz Muhammad who who you catch uh, uh, somebody from the subway saying he'll never get past. That's why Brandon Jennings didn't go to Arizona. They red flagged him, and Brandon said bullcrap. And this was before Muhammad. He says it's going to take six months for them to make a ruling. I mean, then you watch the Miami University case where they actually were making a deal with with the guy. I mean. You know, and then you get Mark Emmerich of the world, and you get you know the late Miles Brand, and all these presidents. They make millions of dollars a year, and not that they should. I don't know what the hell their job is. I said this publicly, and I, I say it again. I don't know what they do to get paid. They don't have the authority other than to discriminately pick and choose what they're doing. But this academic stuff, North Carolina, woo, the hypocrites of all hypocrites. And I'll tell you what, they're going to get stung. They're going to get stung, but I'll bet you a dime to donut on your program that they don't take that championship away from Roy Williams. There's more guys in the Hall of Fame who have done nothing and have cheated to get in there than anybody I know, any organization in the world. And I'm not saying that they shouldn't be because I don't know what the hell cheating constitutes anymore. I have no idea, so I'm not going to gauge them. But I know one thing about North Carolina. I ain't saying they got $5 or $10. I'm saying these kids didn't get a degree worse crap. And that, to me, is the most egregious thing. So that's – we got a little off on your program. I don't know if you want to – Well, no, no. I, I actually want to discuss this. I mean, how disappointed were you then on your own documentary, the the Soul Man doc, 30 for 30, when, you know, Bayheim and, and John Thompson and, – and there's countless other coaches who feel this way too – said that they flat-out disagree with you, that they feel like kids shouldn't be compensated – and that it's a mutually beneficial relationship was the, the quote between the school uh, you know and, and the athletes. And they are all friends of mine, and you know, and I like them. I and they, I think some of them said that they were, you know, friends with me also. You know, yeah. disappointed. You know, very disappointed. But I think they're an older generation that you know that I don't think they really understood the implication of what this lawsuit is about. I, I wish they would have said differently, but I respect what they at least they said it, and that's okay. That's okay. I mean, they, that that's what they believe. I mean, whether I'm disappointed or not means nothing. I mean, I can say you know that's their opinion; they're entitled to it, like I have an opinion and I'm entitled to it. I think what was more hurtful than than anything was uh, when when you you got into the depth of what I was talking about at at. Uh, it, 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 it's a soul man thing when you saw how it all started and, you know, how I was always Darth Vader with, you know, subsidizing summer basketball and all that sort of stuff. And, you know, and then watching the, you know, colleges now are going to all school deals, which I did the first one with Miami in what's 89, you know, the money, they're still taking the money from corporate America. So, it's very that that's what discouraged me. It wasn't so much that coaches have an opinion. That that's fine. I mean, I wish they would have, you know, agreed with what we were trying to do. But but to sit here and stay on the NCAA, these people blasphemy me. And then, you know, and Phil Knight or whoever else was doing it in the eighties. But since I've been out of it, I mean, it's just gotten bigger and bigger and bigger. I mean, it's it's ironic to me that that they keep taking the money of the shoe companies. And I think Taylor Branch did me a big service by one of the greatest articles ever written, The Shame of College Athletics, a few years ago. Taylor Branch is a Pulitzer Prize winner on racial relationships. He's not a sports person. He writes this, mm-hmm. this damning story that you and others, thousands of others, have read. When I said, and they asked me when I was at the Knight Commission, why, why don't, you know, I... You know, why do I keep offering? And I said, because they'll, they'll keep taking. And I was, you realize that no one ever picked up on that? That was like in 2003 or two, two something like that, in the early 2000s, until Taylor said it. But it was very prophetic, wasn't it? Because they, they still keep taking it. So there's nothing wrong with the NCAA and their schools and the hypocrisy of the people in Indiana 
taking the money still today, and it's in the millions, the millions. <laughs> I mean, it's amazing. So somewhere along, they they were lies. I mean, now's the chance I get to say those hypocrites. They they try to kill me. They did, and anyone with common sense knows I was their number one enemy because I was blamed for every goddamn thing. But my point here is, damn, I couldn't have been too much of a bad guy. They still keep taking the money, and I I haven't given it to anybody in eight years. (laughs) What essentially do you think needs to change? Well, (laughs) we don't have time. (laughs) <laughs> uh, I think the first, the first, the first thing it needs to change is is the window appeal and the colleges and the people who run, who do run, and that's the athletic departments should get together and and figure out a way to compensate these kids. There has to be a way, and this isn't pay for play where they're going to get payday when a game's over. That isn't going to happen. But there's got to be logical, logical explanations for dividing the money up. And if we went past our appeal. And they got to get to Jeffrey Kessler's case. The game's going to be over unless they make a deal. Because if Jeffrey Kessler wins, they're going to be they're going to have partners. <laughs> there won't be Kobe Bryant won't have to go. He can go to college because he'll get the money wise in college. That's why they all use rationale and figure out a way to do this. That's why this appeal thing. Now the case is going to go to Supreme Court, so nothing, you know. But it'll just it'll give them time. The hypocrites, I call them. They'll give them time to live on their own, you know, you know, merits, and they shouldn't be. There should be something done. And the other thing is the academic fraud. Sonny, what percentage of college basketball players do you think are being paid on some level under the table? I, I don't want to think about that. I'm not going to. I don't know. I, I never, I never, you know, and I think as another one of those blessings in my life, because everyone mm-hmm. assumes I know the rest of the story that way. Do I think it's happening? In my own personal opinion, yes, without any knowledge of her or seeing it, I can't comment. I've never seen it. That's why my relationship with Tarkania was so interesting. Jerry was a dear, dear friend. Uh, you know, I knew most of the players, and half of my problems with the NCAA were based out of Las Vegas. But I can say until I die, and there's no reason, you know, hell, everyone knows me out of you know, I, I probably would like to have said, yeah, I know, but I didn't. Whatever they did or didn't do, I never saw. So for me to say it, I can't. But I, do I think right. that there's illicit things happening? Well, the money's so big now, it's ridiculous. I mean, it's huge. I mean, isn't it interesting? They they brought the kids to the to the football game last year, and they thought they did something. They, you know, why did they pay the, the why don't they pay for all the kids to play in the NCAA tournament's parents to go to the games? I mean. I don't, you know, I don't want to get down that line, but you know, they got billions of dollars. But do I think illicit things, cash happens? I would assume that it does. I would assume that it does. Well, listen, I've taken a lot of your time, so I just want to ask you a, a couple quick questions. Thank you so much for being candid and all. I really appreciate it. First of all, who's the greatest high school basketball player you've ever seen? Well, I had various ones and different things. The first greatest one was a kid uh, named Raymond Lewis <laughs> out of out of California in the, in the late 60s, early 70s. He was unbelievably fantastic. If you go write the bio of, of Raymond, no one's going to know what I'm talking about. He was absolutely brilliant. He he was crazy, too, because he, he got drafted by the 76 in the first round, and he left, all those things. But as you play it through, there's no one – ever going to be greater than LeBron James. That ain't going to ever happen again. I mean, and, and you take it, you know, the next level, you know, he'll go 1-1A one one with Michael when it's all said and done. But but Raymond Lewis, and there, there was a few. I mean, Kobe, I mean, these, these kids were good. Uh, the greatest unknown player was McGrady, because I don't think he had no training at all. But I, I was there for all of them. I, I remember Moses played, you know, my all-star game. I mean, so I've been fortunate. But Michael wasn't by the by the own, by the the way his life turned out wasn't a great high school player. And if he was as great as he was in high school, then there was a lot of mistakes made. <laughs> I, I didn't know about Michael. <laughs> Incredible. I didn't. Yeah. Anything that wasn't included in the Thirty for Thirty documentary about you that you would like people to know about you? Yeah. 
I think, and one of the days when I write my book, I'll put in. I don't think people have a clue who I am. I, I, I think I, I really don't. It was all a lot of the articles were framed to make me look like you know whoever. I mean, uh, and by that I mean if you would, <laughs> in my way, in my way, without a formal education at some of the great universities, I'm as probably as literate. I, I've never, I've never read non-fiction. You know, I mean, uh, not, I, 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 I mean, I, I know. How do I say this in the right way and frame it for your audience here? If you looked at my house from time to time, I had five, six hundred books. Everything was autobiographies, historical, whatever. I, I can't stand uh, to watch things that aren't right, and I would be able to converse with you very deeply into some of the interesting people that would not be my horizon. In my in my other world, music, uh, one of these days, if I live long enough, I'm going to write the greatest musical. It's going to be about country music. And But I, I love Broadway. I think Pam and I have seen every major play since the, the 70s. I mean... I can remember Patti Lapone and Manny Potemkin standing on the stage for Iwo Vita. I, can, I mean, so so these are things they have no clue, and because whatever, because they have their own, they have their own reasons not to know the person they don't like. Adam, I think that's what I come down to. That's probably a pretty fair statement uh, about most people. I think it. In like yeah, the, I think so. Uh, that I think that's very accurate for all of us who get pigeonholed. Just take time out. I mean, I going through all these papers, and I literally have a lot because that's I'm, I'm researching my life now. But my point here is, I go back and I see some of the comments. Well, look who's talking. Consider the source. Uh, you know, stuff like that. And you say, damn. All you have to do is find out. You know. But I pretty well. <laughs> I guess. There's no doubt. There's so there's no doubt. Some of the biggest companies in the world trusted me. I mean, I, I always I always said that to myself. I don't know how when we were running the world and I was over at Nike that I was, you know, you know I was Mr. Evil and Phil who actually paid me and treated me really well until he fired me. You know, he got a pass. <laughs> Hell, <laughs> that's interesting to me. But that's another time for another life. But I'm I'm happy. And I married an unbelievable woman, and uh, and I'm sitting here hoping that we win the appeal tomorrow. And if we win the appeal tomorrow, then onward, charge the light brigade. Zoop, go for it! All right. So all that being said, what what regrets do you have? Oh, I don't. You know, this is a cliche. I think everyone is happy with their life. Says it. You know, I have none because everything turned out okay for me. I've lived a pretty, a much longer life than a lot of the dearest people I ever met in my life. I had no sufferings in that way. I, I think the regrets I have is looking at the inequities for others that I wasn't able to do more, and I think that's why this would turn out so important. You know how sometimes in the life you have and what you can and can't do, you say, "I wish I had something I could do something to help him or her." Uh, you know, maybe I could have done more. I have no idea, but uh, I'm okay. The, 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 I think the, the I think the biggest hurt for me, and it's really uh, vanity. In the piece on on the, the the thirty on thirty, that Michael didn't talk. Uh, you know, I thought only because other than me and him and his ex-wife Juanita, my wife. Pam and, and Phil Knight know how close we were. And, you know, that would have meant something more to me than a lot of the other things that could... I was disappointed at Michael, because he's, he's bigger than life. And if it's not for me, this doesn't happen. So you can't escape that either. And it's nothing to do with me. It's all about him. But as I said, there was no brand Jordan if he doesn't go to Nike. So I think we can end it with that. That'd be good. That's a good ending for you. <laughs> I, I think so. Have you talked to Michael Jordan since the doc? No, I haven't. I, I, I don't do that. I mean, no. I'll, I'll run into him, 
I'll see him. I see him from time to time. He's always cordial when we see each other. That's you know, that, that's not like he doesn't run. And LeBron will give me a big hug, and he, we get Christmas cards from LeBron. And uh, Kobe's little, you know, Kobe forgets what he's done. I, he's having his own problems. And uh, last question for you: What do you think your legacy is? I, that's not for me to decide. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I, I, I've had a great life, and I know that I know that in my mind, uh, hopefully, I've done right by people that I knew or could help or do whatever. I, I don't know. I don't know. You know, I feel good about my life. If I was called right now, you know, I don't. There's no regrets on that. I don't think I hurt anybody personally. I screwed up. I made some screw ups, but I don't think I hurt anybody. So it'll be up to you guys to tell the rest of the world what this crazy guy was about. Really appreciate Sonny's time, his insight, and his passion. For sure, he has critics, and there are many more who simply disagree with what he has to say. But the game of basketball and hoops culture on the whole just would not be the same without him. You can catch the 30 for 30 documentary Soul Man on Sonny Vaccaro online, and you can catch this podcast on iTunes. We highly recommend that you subscribe to the podcast. We love that so many people have been subscribing on iTunes and, and listening when they get the opportunity. We're on Twitter at Great Point Pod, and I'm on Twitter at Naismith Lives. And finally, just wanted to say thank you to my wife, Kate Stanko, for producing this podcast and for putting up with me. Also wanted to say thanks to you for supporting the show. I can't tell you how much the support has been to us. We always appreciate you listening, and we'll catch you next time.